Amen. If you have a Bible, if you wouldn't mind turning to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and uh, uh, just an FYI, I know the kids here are going downstairs, but if there's any kids watching online, we're going to be talking about some sensitive topics today, so just a heads up on that. Um, I usually preach, when I preach, I preach through books of the Bible. Some people do it a little bit differently. They'll just kind of preach different topics, and uh, I preach through books of the Bible, and one of the reasons I do that is because it forces me to preach on texts and topics that I don't necessarily want to preach upon. And today is one of those days. This is a, a text and a topic that I don't necessarily want to preach upon. But I think it's something that's important, that's included in the Bible, and so I think it's important to hear what God has to say on this. So today we're talking about the uh, topic of sex and sexual immorality. Uh, years ago, there was this uh, pastor's conference, and uh, at this pastor's conference, they were training young ministers and how to be preachers and uh, how to be ministers of the gospel. And uh, this famous uh, minister goes up to the pulpit and he really wanted to, to have an illustration that grabbed people's attention. And so he said, I've spent the best years of my life in the arms of a woman, and that woman is not my wife. Everybody sat quietly. They were shocked. They gasped. And then he confidently went on to say, and that woman was my mother. And so he continued with the message, got everybody's attention, and it was just a great message and just really hit the point home. And so one of these ministers in training heard that illustration, then he went back to his church, and it was the first time he'd ever preached before, and so he's go, he decides he's going to use that same illustration at his church. And uh, he's super nervous about bringing this message, uh, but he thinks, all right, I'm going to grab their attention, and it's going to be like this, this mentor, this, this, this message that I heard. So he kind of shyly, quietly goes up to the pulpit, and he says, I spent the best years of my life in the arms of a woman. That woman was not my wife. Then he didn't say anything for like 10 seconds. Everybody's shocked at what he's saying. And then he's all nervous, probably shaking a little bit, and he says, and, and I can't remember who she was. See, he remembered the idea, but he didn't remember, remember the punchline. And I think that's kind of how what has happened in our culture in regard to sexuality. We know the idea, but we've kind of forgotten the punchline. And uh, this is something I think that's been happening throughout human history. It's not something that's new. It's something that's been happening throughout human history. There's a, a story of a young girl, a seven-year-old girl who goes to school and she receives this, you know, little card on the first day of school. And it included her name, address, telephone number, uh, height, weight, and sex. And so she went home crying. And she, she shows this card to her mother and says, I got an F in sex and I haven't even learned about it yet. I think sadly throughout history... We've tended to get an F when it comes to sex. Sometimes when we think about it, you know, we think that our age is kind of a especially immoral age. 
It's like things are getting, you know, worse than they've ever been in the history of the world, but that's just not the case. There's always been sexual immorality throughout the history of the world. Now, some of the issues could change, some issues related to transgenderism and stuff like that. You know, they didn't have technology like we do today that questions like that weren't even on the table. But there's always been distortions, there's always been perversions of sexuality throughout history. Uh, you go back to Jesus' day, and there was this common belief that, uh, so people believed that affairs were, were something that was supposed to happen. Uh, in other words, they believed that uh, for production of children, you'd have children with your wife, and then it was perfectly acceptable to have recreational sex with other people. So, you know, it was common for people to have uh, a wife and then have multiple mistresses. It was just kind of accepted in that day and age. You go back to a few decades before Jesus was born, and the Roman philosopher, philosopher Cicero wrote this about sexuality in the Greek or Roman culture. He says, however, if there's anyone who thinks that youth should be forbidden affairs, even with courtesans, uh, which was a type of prostitute, he's doubtless eminently austere. I cannot deny it. But his view is contrary not only to the license of this age, but also to the custom and concessions of our ancestors. For when was this not a common practice? When was it blamed? When was it forbidden? When, in fact, was it that it was uh, what is allowed was not allowed? So here we are back decades before Jesus was born, and Cicero is saying, in essence, it should be okay. It is wrong to tell anyone that they shouldn't have affairs with whoever they please. And if you tell anybody anything different, then you're an intolerant prude. Sounds a little bit familiar to our culture today. And that's decades before Jesus was born. And I think that in some ways our culture overemphasizes sexuality and in some ways our culture underestimates sexuality. You know, we think about this pandemic we just went through, and uh, throughout this pandemic, there's been kind of people in the middle, and then there's, there's people on both extremes. You know, on the one extreme, you have people that are like, oh, it's just a flu, it doesn't matter, you know, and they're completely opposed to, to masks or vaccines or any kind of mitigation effort. And then on the other hand, you have people that are just terrified to leave their homes. You know, you drive by, and they're in their yard. There's nobody within, like, two miles, and they're wearing a mask or wearing a mask in their car by themselves. And so you have these two extremes. Some people kind of overemphasize it a little bit, and some people kind of underestimate it a little bit. And I think when it comes to sexuality in our culture, we do both. Our culture does both of those things. It overemphasizes it in some ways, and it underestimates it in some ways. So how, does, uh, how is sexuality overvalued or overestimated in our culture? Well, they say that sex sells. Apparently it does. It's a part of uh, a good deal of marketing in our culture. I was watching a football game last week, and a, su a Subway commercial, of all places, had these, like, overt sexual undertones in this commercial. I mean, it's for a sandwich, and there's sexual overtones in this commercial. And then you have a constant discussion of uh, homosexuality, transgenderism, other sexual issues, and uh, I believe what the Bible teaches, that there were th those lifestyles are not right, they're sin. But even if you take that off of the table, even if you were to agree with those lifestyles, uh, I think you, we could all admit that we talk about sexual issues in our culture a lot. 
at the detriment to other issues. I mean, you think about, like, issues related to world hunger. You know, according to uh, the UN, in 2019, about 20%, over 20% of children experienced stunting. That is delayed growth because they didn't have enough food. They were malnourished. In the world today, about 811 people go to bed hungry each night. Now, how often do we hear those kinds of things? We don't hear them very often, but we hear top, about topics related to sexual matters again and again and again. If you had to kind of put them together, it would probably be sexual matters 100 to 1 related to issues related to world hunger. And I think that sex is given a place of prominence in our society it was never meant to be in. And the way that I know that sex is emphasized more than it should be is because of the way that Paul talks in this passage. Paul makes a startling claim that sex is not required for a full, abundant life. It's completely opposed to what our culture tells us. Our culture tells us that sex is necessary for the good life. And our culture tells us that even if a person is single, even if they're not married, then they should be engaging in sexual uh, intercourse. And the idea of a person being single, abstaining from sexual activity is considered unusual, sometimes even beckoning questions like, what's wrong with them? Can't they find anybody? What's, what's the, the deal with them? Is, do they have some problem? And so there's this idea that if you are going to have a full, abundant life, you have to engage in sexual activity. But Paul says something different. In chapter 7, verse 7, he says, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God. So when Paul is saying that, he's saying, I wish that you were all single like I am. I mean, if you've ever questioned whether a single person can live a meaningful, full life, you need to look no further than Paul or Jesus. It'd be hard to make the argument that they didn't live a full, significant, joyful life. And yet our culture tells us that you have to be engaged in sexual activity in order to live a full life. Paul goes even further and he suggests that there are even advantages of singleness. He says in chapter 7, verse 32, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. So Paul argues that not only is singleness an option, but in some ways there are certain advantages of being single. The single people don't have to worry about the everyday things of life. They don't have to worry about what they cook for dinner for their spouse. They don't have to worry about taking care of children. They have a full freedom to serve the Lord with all of their hearts, with all of their time. writer named Howard Vanderwall wrote this. He says, I believe most Christians don't sub subscribe to the legitimacy of singleness. I am convinced that is the reason for so much pain and hurt in the church about that issue. Directly or indirectly, subtly or not so subtly, we have ascribed to the conviction that singles are unfinished business. We say in groups and in private conversations, aren't you married yet? What's a nice girl like you doing unmarried? What you need is a good wife. Found anybody to date yet? I'm praying the Lord will lead you to a good guy. Or it's too bad he's not married. Parents say that. Relatives say that. Family reunions apparently are notorious for saying those kinds of things. Books and articles are written from a Christian viewpoint and say if you'll only commit your life to Christ, God will give you a marriage partner. He says, but Christ never said that. He said he'll lead you to a life of meaning and purpose and fulfillment. He's, 
never said he would give you marriage. He's more concerned about other things. In addition to this, Paul goes and he talks about this current crisis. He talks about the present distress. And uh, we don't know for sure what the present distress was, uh, but it might have been like a famine or something uh, very serious that was happening in the church of Corinth in the area at, at that time. And he says, in light of the given crisis, I'm encouraging you to just kind of stay where you're at. If you're married, stay married. If you're unmarried, you know, don't try to seek a spouse. Now, that was for that particular context. It wasn't for all time. It was during that particular present distress. But how would our culture answer that question? If there was something significant, something dangerous that was happening, what would our culture say? Culture says, live it up. Go try to enjoy yourself because the end is coming. But Paul doesn't say that. Paul says, stay where you are. Be content where you are. And what that indicates is, in Paul's mind, you don't have to be in a sexual relationship to have a meaningful life. And so in that sense, our culture overvalues sex, that you have to be involved in a sexual relationship to have a meaningful, full life. But in other ways, sexuality is under, undervalued by our culture. And I think it's undervalued in the sense that uh, what lies behind our cultural viewpoint is this idea that sex is primarily a biological thing. It's a physical need just like other physical needs, and it's important uh, that we are free to fulfill ourselves, be free to enjoy ourselves in any way we see fit. There was a study that was done by ChristianMingle.com, and Christian singles between the ages of 18 and 59 were asked, would you have sex before marriage? 63% 63% of the single uh, youth and adult uh, responded yes. In response to this survey, Kenny Luck wrote this. He says, in my 30 years of youth and adult ministry experience, this is an unfiltered, direct, and honest uh, as, as a question and answer can be. In practice, Christian young adults have become sexual atheists. In other words, God has nothing to say to them on that subject of any consequence, or at least anything meaningful enough to dissuade them from following their own course of conduct. It's the ultimate oxymoron, a person who at once believes in a wise, sovereign, and loving God who created them in all things can also believe simultaneously that he should not, cannot, or will not inform their thinking or living sexually. So to our culture, sex is primarily a physical thing. It's not a spiritual thing. It's a biological thing. It's not a spiritual thing. And it's interesting because it's exactly how people in the church of Corinth thought. The church, people in the church of Corinth uh, had this saying, apparently, that went like this. It said, uh, the food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And then it's this idea that desire for food is a physical matter, physical desire, and food fulfills that. And so what they would argue is that it doesn't matter what you do, what you eat, because you're going to die anyways. So in other words, if you have a cheeseburger or a hot dog, it's, it's not going to make a difference 100 years from now because you're going to be dead. They would, they would take that and apply that to sexuality. They would say, it's a bodily thing. It doesn't matter what you do sexually because 100 years from now, you're going to be dead. It's a physical matter. It's not a spiritual matter. Paul will have none of that. And this is why the Corinthians might allow uh, things in the church that Paul says that even pagans will not allow. In the church in Corinth, there was a man who was sleeping with his mother. And apparently the Corinthians just, you know, had no issue with that. Now, 
if, if we understand their perspective of, of believing it's a physical thing, they might think to themselves, well, it's not a spiritual matter. It's a physical thing. Now, it's not something that we would do, not something we necessarily approve of, but who are we to say anything different? And Paul says, no, it's not, a, it's not simply a physical issue. And he goes so far as saying that you need to expel that person from the church. Now, he is very clear to say he's not talking about unbelievers. He's not talking about people who are not united to Christ, not following after Christ. He says if you, if you would expel them, I mean, that's everyone. Anyone who's apart from Christ might be doing these things. He says don't judge people outside of the church, but if there's a person who claims to be a Christian and is doing these types of things, whether it's uh, sexual immorality that's unrepentant and continual or it's some other matter, whether it's idolatry, he says uh, swindlers, uh, those who are greedy, all these different types of e uh, evil. If you're doing these things and are unrepentant and continually in immorality, Paul says the church has to do something about that. Paul goes even so far as to say don't associate with people who name the name of Christ and who do things like this. It seems a little bit harsh to me, but think about it this way. Imagine you get married, and on your wedding night, your spouse goes down to the local bar and is flirting with members of the opposite sex. It's not long before your new spouse, quote, spouse, starts having affairs with person after person after person. But every time they have an affair, they're quick to say, I'm married to you. They're quick to show their wedding ring to show that they're married. But they're sleeping with everybody. They have no commitment. They're not really married. I mean, you'd get to a point pretty quickly where you'd be upset. Like, don't tell people you're married to me. Don't show people the wedding ring if you're not really in this relationship. And the same thing is true spiritually. God says if you're going to show the wedding ring, if you're going to say you're a believer in Christ, you need to act the part. You can't be following after other lovers. You can't be following after under, un, other gods, living unrepentant, continual sin, and say, oh, I'm a Christian. Again, he's not talking about people who are unbelievers. He says, don't judge them. Don't judge people who are unbelievers. You, you wouldn't expect anything different. But for people who show the wedding room, who claim to be, Christ, to, to be in Christ, he says it's a serious issue, and the community of faith should do something about that. It's certainly not an easy thing to do in our culture. But after this, he talks about uh, prostitution and, uh, in chapter 6. I'm going to read uh, verses 12 to 19 here, uh, 12 to 20. Chapter 6, verses 12 to 20 says this, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is, as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. 
So Paul is talking about avoiding prostitution, which was really big in that culture. And he takes an approach that's kind of interesting to me. See, if I were writing this passage, if I were writing to the Corinthians, I would maybe quote some statistics. And I would say, hey, you know what? Prostitution, it's going to destroy your marriages. It's going to hurt your relationships. Um, It's going to have really negative effects on your life. It's going to break that marriage bond that you have with your spouse. And I would take that from kind of the relational aspect. Now, of course, those things are true. Paul wouldn't deny those things, but he doesn't mention any of those. In other words, what he does is he says, okay, if you go with a prostitute, it's not going to just break your union with your spouse. It's also going to break up your union with Christ. It's even deeper than a physical relationship. He says when you go after a a, a, a prostitute, you're going to break up your relationship with Christ. It's like you're serving two different gods. See, in the ancient world, the Israelites, one of the things that they often fell into was they would fall into sexual sin, and then they would fall into idolatry right after that. They would follow after, they would marry uh, the gods of the nation, marry the, the women or the men of the nations, and then they would follow after their gods. The sexual immorality led to idolatry. And so Paul makes the argument that if you're going to a prostitute, you're just not just breaking up your relationship with your spouse, you're breaking up your relationship with Christ. Look again at what it says in chapter 6, verse 16 to 17. Do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. It's a remarkable statement. It's not just sexual immorality. It doesn't just sever the union between husband and wife, but it also severs the union between Christ and the believer. Because sex was meant to illustrate the truth of the gospel. Sex is a picture of Christ's love for the church. Tim Keller writes this, The ecstasy and joy of sex is supposed to be a foretaste of the complete ecstasy and joy of total union with Christ. The moment we see face to fa- Christ face to face, we will be naked, yet so delighted in our own nakedness that we'll be ashamed, unashamed. The Lord God will look at us through Jesus and say, I love you. Great sex is a parable of the gospel to be utterly accepted in spite of your sin to be loved by the one you admire to the sky. See, Paul says that it's not just a physical matter, it's a spiritual matter. Because sex is supposed to point to the relationship of Christ and Christ's love for his church. I mean, have you ever noticed how sexual sin tends to have more negative effects in people's lives than other types of sin? And it's not always the case, but it often is the case where sexual sin has more negative effects than other types of sin. And the reason is that when a couple has sexual relations, the couple are committing themselves to one another. It's an act of commitment. And if this is outside of marriage, they're committing something that they don't intend to communicate. They're committing themselves physically, but maybe not spiritually with their hearts and with their souls. That's why it's important to refrain from sexual activity outside of marriage. But also, Paul goes and takes the opposite route. He says it's also uh, important to engage in sexual activity inside of marriage. Uh, Whereas some people in the Corinthian church were saying, 
okay, it's the sex is just a physical thing. It doesn't matter what you do. Go sleep with whoever you want. Do whatever you want. It doesn't matter. Other people were saying, okay, yeah, it's a physical thing, spiritual thing. So if you are really, really spiritual, then you will not engage in sexual activity in any context, even in marriage. And Paul says that that is incorrect. They were saying it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. That's what the Corinthians were saying. And yet Paul commands that couples inside of marriage engage in sexual relations. When a couple engages in sexual relations, they're recommitting one another to the covenant of marriage. Uh, in ancient covenants, what would happen is often there would be one, a one-time sign of the covenant. Oftentimes there would be a sacrifice that would be made that would signify the covenant. And then there was re-ratification of, uh, of the covenant. There would be things that would be done regularly to remind themselves of the covenant. And sexual activity is that reminder. Each time a couple engages in sexual activity, they are recommitting themselves to the marriage commitment that they made on their wedding day. And so it's a sign and commitment of the covenant that was made. He also goes further and says that marriage and sex within marriage is a guard against sexual immorality. And he says in, verse, in chapter 7, verse 36, uh, that if anyone thinks that he's not behaving properly towards his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes, let them marry, it is no sin. So he says that um, sexual activity within marriage can be a guard against sexual immorality. So Paul and the Bible teach... a. Uh, a sexual ethic that's completely different from our cultural understanding. On the one hand, it's not as important as we've made it to be. It's not the be-all and end-all of having a fulfilling, joyful life. That it is possible to live a life of fulfillment and joy without sexual activity. But also, it's been undervalued in our culture. It's been undervalued by seeing it simply as a physical thing rather than as a spiritual thing, as Christ's love for his church. So a few weeks ago, I went to a car cruise over there in Wurlitzer, and I've never been to a car cruise before, um, but my father-in-law really loves cars, and so we thought we'd go and check it out. It was pretty cool, and so I see all these really fancy old cars, all shiny, have all the hoods up, look awesome, and so we're just kind of talking and standing around, and what I do is I'm just kind of leaning on one of the cars. And someone looks and sees me, and they're like, no, don't do that, don't do that. I'm like, I jump, I'm like, what, what? It's like, you don't touch the cars. You do not touch the cars. You know, and I think about these beautiful old cars, and it's like, that'd be really cool to own something like that. Of course, I don't have the money to own a car like that, but it'd be nice to have a car like that. And in some ways, it would, but you don't think about, you know, the work that goes into making them look like that. I mean, you've got to wax them continually. You've got to do all this routine maintenance. And then there's a lot of things you can't do. Like some of the cars, there's like a Model T that was there. You can't go over like 35 miles an hour. You can't drive it in the wintertime. Probably don't want to drive it much at all. You don't want to go to Home Depot and load up some bricks and put it in the back. So it's, they're cool. They're beautiful cars, but they require care. The same thing is true when it comes to sex. It's a good thing, Paul says, but it requires care. And so while our culture undervalues and overvalues and undervalues sex in some way, the passage shows us that while it's not necessary for a good, well-lived life, it's more powerful than we realize as it paints a picture 
of the gospel and the love of Christ for the church. So what's the parting word that Paul gives us? Paul tells us, flee from sexual immorality. Run from sexual immorality. There's a movie, many of you have probably seen it, it's called Mr. Holland's Opus. Uh, Mr. Holland's Opus is a story about a composer from Portland, Oregon, who uh, became a band teacher. Became a band teacher just to uh, make a living, but he always dreamed of becoming a famous composer. And uh, as he became a band teacher, he was still at first trying to write this opus, a great famous uh, classical work. And as time went on, he found that uh, his responsibilities at home with his wife and child and his responsibilities at work made it hard for him to follow his dream. So eventually he started to realize he probably was never going to become a famous composer. He had struggles with his marriage. Uh, part of the reason was because he had a son who was, uh, who was deaf and had trouble raising the child. And so he had a lot of trouble with his marriage. So he was directing a school musical and he met a young lady named Rowena who was uh, one of the people in the, in the musical. And uh, she came to fall in love with Mr. Holland. She was a senior, and she told him that she wanted him to go with her to New York City, and they could kind of start a new life there, and he could follow his dream and become a great composer. So he kind of affirmed her abilities and, and, and was a good teacher to her, and she wanted him to go with, him, with her, so she, 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 he was supposed to meet her uh, at this bus pickup uh, where they were going to drive to New York City. So she goes to the bus stop, is loading up her stuff into the bus, and then Mr. Holland appears, but Rowena notices she doesn't ha he doesn't have any luggage. So she says to him, well, you pack lightly. He doesn't acknowledge her attempt at humor, but just simply hands her a slip of paper with the name of a couple he knows in New York City where she can stay. Rowena reluctantly admits, this isn't the way I imagined it. Mr. Holland says, but it's the best way. He found the inner strength to resist the temptation. That evening, Mr. Holland walks into his bedroom where his wife appears to be sleeping. He looks tenderly at her, looks her in the eyes and says, I love you. His wife looks up at him and responds, I know. Aware of the victory that he's won in fulfilling his wedding vows, he takes his wife in his arm and holds her. Ladies and gentlemen, whether we're single, whether we're married, we need to flee from sexual immorality because it's something that's more powerful than we realize and because it paints a picture of the love of Christ for the church. It's not simply a physical thing. It's also a spiritual thing. It shows the world what Christ's love is like. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your great, unfailing, never-ending love that's pictured in the marriage relationship. We thank you that you never leave us. You never forsake us. Lord, we live in a culture where sexuality is so broken. We've all fallen in, in different ways, Lord. We're all in need of grace. Lord, I pray that as the people of God, we would be faithful, that we would run from the things that would harm us, that would fail to communicate the truth of your love. Lord, I pray that in our marriages, in our singleness, 
no matter what our situation is in life, that everything we do would point the world to your great, unfailing, unstoppable, never-ending love. In Christ's name I pray, amen.